This week on Chefs Without Restaurants, I have Christine Flynn. She's the proprietor of the Good Earth Winery, an executive chef and partner at IQ Food Co., a restaurant group with multiple locations in Toronto. Christine recently released her second cookbook, A Generous Meal, and came by the show to talk about it and a whole lot more. This is Chris Spear, and you're listening to Chefs Without Restaurants, the show where I speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all doing tremendous. Or is that tremendously? Uh, I'm not really sure. Anyway, I am still battling a bout of bronchitis, so once again, I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet because my throat's a little gravelly. I also noticed the people across the street finally have their yard people here, and there's some, I don't know, leaf blowers, chainsaws, and nonsense, so you don't need to hear all that. So let's get to it. Christine's new book came out a few weeks ago, and I think you're going to love it. I feel like it finds the sweet spot between being a cookbook that chefs will like, full of flavor-packed recipes, but also having recipes that are relatively easy to execute, quick, and won't break the bank. If you're looking for some innovative ways to use a head of cabbage and some beans, this is the book for you. Christine's also a food writer, stylist, and photographer. And if her name is familiar, but you're not sure where you might know her from, she was also the person behind the Instagram account Jacques Lemaire back in 2015-2016. For those of you who aren't up on their French, La Merde literally means the shit. Jacques was known for his overly worked and tweezered plates of beautiful food, but the dishes were composed of junk food. Think modernist take on a Big Mac. And while she had fun with it at the time, Christine has moved past her Jacques days. Like myself, she's a parent of twins and says that these days she's more focused on family cooking. We even talk a little bit about cooking with kids on the show. I asked Christine about her views on sustainability and what that means to her, and we just have a really great conversation about the cookbook, some of the recipes, her techniques, and how she likes to approach food these days. So I'm going to jump out of here and let you listen to the show. You can find links to her social media pages, her new cookbook, and everything in the show notes as usual. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it. Let people know about the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to listen to me and the show, and I hope you have a great day. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here today. I can't wait to talk to you about your new cookbook and all the really cool things you're doing in the food and beverage world. Thank you. So before we kind of dive into what you do now and the book and everything, I always like to start the show with a little bit of like culinary backstory. Are you, have you been a lifelong food person? Like, did you grow up loving food and cooking and kind of how did you get into this whole weird, wild world of food and beverages? I mean, I've always loved food. My family moved a lot when I was little. We moved, I think, seven times before I was nine. That's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. Nova Scotia to England to Alberta, which is the Canadian equivalent of the Midwest, I would say, and back east and then sort of central. So we moved many times. And one of the ways that I think my parents sort of compensated for all the disruption was by having a very consistent dinner schedule. So we ate dinner together as a family pretty much every night. And we ate uh, home-cooked meals. So I was always kind of poking around the stove and seeing what was going on. And I think every kid wants to, you know, mimic their parents. And so I got into cooking quite early. I think the first time I picked up a knife, I was about five. And, um, and so, yeah, I've just always, I've always eaten uh, and I've always cooked. 
and not a picky eater when you were a kid? We weren't really allowed to be picky. Um, my parents had a three bite rule. So you had to try three bites of everything, which I think helps build a palate from a very young age. And I think that the other thing was that with all the moves, I mean, my dad went back to school when I was quite young, you know, you, you get what you get and you don't get upset. So it wasn't like if we didn't like something. There was an alternative. It was like, Hey, we're having beef tongue for dinner. If you don't want it, you can just go to bed. <laughs> so. I love it. I mean, that's how I was raised too in the eighties, you know, and now it's like my son could probably do to put on some weight and we've talked to his doctor and they're just like, well, if he doesn't want to eat, don't make him eat and have some always available stuff. I'm like, are, like, are you kidding? My dad never would have let me just like get up and like not eat the dinner my mom made and make like a peanut butter sandwich. I remember sitting in front of like this pile of uh, butternut squash for like two hours at the dinner table. They say you're not supposed to do that anymore. I don't know. I haven't done it with my kids, but I think it made me less of a particular eater as a kid. And similar to you, like I loved being around my my mom, particularly, who cooked all the time. And that just instilled a love of cooking in me. Yeah. And I think as you get older, you realize how important it is, particularly if you travel or you know working in the industry, even if you're in the back, you end up at some you end up at some fancy dinners every once in a while, you know, and, and I've had the good fortune to be at a few over the years. And you want to know how to behave. You don't want to be the person who's sitting there not knowing which fork to use or is like freaked out by the lamb brains on your plate. You know, you want to just be able to to eat and enjoy and go after those tastes and experiences. And I want my kids to have that. I really do. I think it's one of the most important things that's driven driven me both in my career and in all the places that I've been is just I'm hungry and I'm curious and I don't have to know exactly you know, what's going to happen. And that's the great thing about being comfortable with food and around food and being able to move between worlds as I think most chefs are. And it brings people together, you know, being around a dinner table, whether it be family or friends. And, you know, that's what I love with this, you know, food and beverage industry. It's what's kept me here for so many years. I know you've been around, you've lived in different places, worked in different places, but you're back in Canada now. So what are you doing on a day to day for work? Oh boy. Uh, well, Little of everything. Yeah. Currently I, uh, I'm actually running a winery in Niagara and, um, amongst other things, I, you know, I still have multiple jobs. Um, but I'm, I'm partnered in a restaurant group in Toronto and we do uh, sort of a healthy, fast, casual, it's very high volume experience. So I consult on the menu there. Um, it's very vegetable forward, but it's also scratch made. So I develop those recipes and I've been doing that for about 10 years. And that's been really fun because I learned how to cook in a very different way. You know, I'm one of the only chefs I know who has really mastered making soup in a rationale oven. <laughs> um, you know, we bake all our soups uh, there. That's but- interesting. I've never I've never seen baked soup before. Is that just like because you had the rationale oven and you figured out how to do it? Well, no. I mean, we use the I leverage the rationale, but it's because we don't have any range. Like all we have at those uh, at those restaurants, and there's nine of them currently. We grew up from two locations when we started. Um, there's no other way to cook soup. It's just like you put it in the oven and you figure it out. So that's one very specific way of cooking. But then, sort of when the uh, when the pandemic popped off, uh, I was on furlough for a while, and then I went back to reduced hours. I kind of wrote this book, A Generous Meal, did some consulting, did a couple other things. And uh, one of the things I was doing was 
just kind of part-time social media of all things for a winery. And then the winery was sold. And then the guy who bought it was looking for someone with a really specific skill set with a background in events, in culinary, you know, in front of house, in marketing. And I ticked every box. And um, so now I run it. <laughs> but I guess <laughs> digging into the things I like. So I teach cooking classes here. I do enjoy the marketing piece and the branding piece. I have a lot of experience in that. Um, but I really I like cooking like in the classes and it's a nice balance between my background working nights in restaurants, which I don't really want to do anymore with two five-year-olds. And also just like, I'm able to interact with the guests in a more meaningful way. So they're demonstration style cooking classes and they're great. And every once in a while I cook a dinner. So we have St. Patty's day on Friday and I'll do, you know, kind of six courses and, go all in and make it really soigné and but I'll do it for like, you know, 18 people. So is it like fancy or pretty traditional for the St. Paddy's Day? Uh well, I'm ethnically Irish. So I I don't know. I mean, I'm doing elevated home cooking, which is what I like to do. You know, I want to make food that tastes like something your grandma would make if your grandma was a really good cook. Uh, but I want to make it look a little bit you know, like a little bit more fine dining, but approachable. Like I think my goal as a chef is to really hit that sweet spot between aspirational and attainable. And that's what I try and do in my books. I I believe everyone deserves to eat beautiful food. I don't think it has to cost that much. I think you can get pretty far with a cabbage. So that's really what I, that's how I like to cook. I'm not fussy, you know? Yeah. Did you say in your book that you always have cabbage in the fridge or something? I think that was like the head note of one of your recipes. Yeah, I have a whole essay. I actually compare myself to a cabbage um, in a complimentary way. You know? I have some Irish in me and I grew up outside of Boston. So very much with the, you know, uh, New England boiled dinner, corned beef and cabbage kind of thing. And as I've moved around the country, I've had to kind of uh, reinterpret that sometimes depending on where I am to make it a little upscale. So totally with you on that. No, one of the dishes I'm doing is actually um, is corned beef in cabbage. So I'm going to make almost like a corned beef like farce and then put it in a Savoy cabbage and then I wrap it in call fat and then, you know, roast it. And it's really delicious. And all the components of corned beef are there, but it's this beautiful little package. And, you know, it looks like something that we served at the Michelin starred restaurant I worked at in Burgundy. Wow. I want, I want to do that. I've got the corned beef. I've got the cabbage on hand right now. Uh, I wasn't thinking about going super fancy at my house for dinner, but I might have to rethink that. Well, I love the area that you are in. My wife and I and kids went up to like Niagara on the lake this past summer, and I just thought it was so beautiful up there. But I was amazed at the produce, you know, just because I always think of it as kind of being, you know, it's northern and I'm, I was kind of picturing it to be cooler, but just the like peaches, Pe- oh. like they, I didn't realize, you know, they're like, we have the best peaches in the world. I'm like, come on, that's Georgia. But the peaches yeah. were, the peaches were delicious. And they are good peaches. I don't know. I've had some pretty good Georgia peaches too, but yeah, we have abundant produce here. And, and again, for me, having lived kind of all over the world, like I'm very happy in Niagara, um, because we have such great access to produce and we are, I think at an interesting time in the food culture here where we are developing our own sense of Niagara regionalism, um, in terms of cuisine. And it's, it's kind of neat to be, uh, on the ground level of that, not the ground level. I shouldn't say that, but in the mix, you know, um, as, as we're kind of expressing it, 
because Canadian cooking really for a long time, its only identity was that it wasn't American, right? Or that yeah. there was poutine here. And now, you know, in the last kind of 10, 15 years, you've seen chefs more stepping into regional cooking in a more meaningful way than just, you know, Montreal and Quebec um, very much had a grip on it a little bit earlier, but you're seeing kind of, you know, different areas of the country really express themselves. And for me, it's always going back to the old recipes, right? And even if it's, um, you know, your grandma's cookbooks or whatever from, you know, the, the women's association in town, uh, like reading those old recipes and figuring out how to serve that in a way that feels both like timeless and timely. That's what I, that's the kind of food that I like to eat. Oh yeah. I love those. I just had a podcast guest a couple of weeks ago and his whole thing is he's has like a Instagram and uh, YouTube channel and he resurrects like those old recipes and he has like a thing called like bring it back or stay in the past and he like finds these random like women's society cookbooks and will pull out some recipe that sounds like it's going to be a train wreck and then he makes it and kind of gives a breakdown as to like whether we should maybe not make it but more often than not he's like this is you know really delicious and then you know you can possibly bump it up a notch and put a totally. modernish twist and I think they were taking the time and there was a level of um, there was a level of attention to detail too, which I don't think that the average person who cooks at home, a lot of people for them, it's, it's really function. It's really just getting a meal on the table. And what I really try and encourage people to do is, you know, not look at cooking so much as like this thing that you have to do, but like this thing that you want to do. Cause it's, it's actually pretty great, right? Like cooking, you don't have to make the whole meal. And I, I'm very clear about that because I don't do that every night. You know, I do cook dinner every night, some part of it, but there's a lot of things I just don't like, I'm not going to make that, you know, but I am going to spend 20 minutes with this cabbage in a 500 degree oven and make something beautiful. But I love cooking because it's like a little problem you can solve every day. Right. And there's so many problems you can't solve, but like the problem of what's for dinner, like just to kind of really like stick in and enjoy that as an activity and to kind of value your ingredients, which is something that, you know, like my grandmothers didn't waste anything. Uh, and even my mom did a pretty good job and with food, but also I grew up with a mom who darned our tube socks, you know, like it was just a completely different world. And somewhere we kind of went off track and bringing those kind of old values back, those old recipes. I'm probably not going to darn tube socks, but I'll, you know, I'll mend a pair of jeans every once in a while. Well, I think having a good stocked pantry and that's in your cookbook, yeah. you know, people joke that like they open my fridge and it's a million condiments, but they could go with literally any, you could have a harissa paste and that could go with a chicken or a filet of fish or rub it on beef. Like if you just have a well-stocked pantry of condiments and, you know, a bunch of grains and, and dry goods and beans yeah. and whatever, you can put together a pretty good flavor packed meal in just a handful of minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. I make a, um, I make a spicy honey and um, it's available like all over North America. And people are always like, what do I do with it? And I was like, you can do literally anything with it. Like it's a starter for a salad dressing. You can dress a chicken in it. You can roast a bunch of carrots and like plunk them in a puddle of yogurt and drizzle it all over top. And it's like a fancy adjacent side, you know, and it's just a couple smart condiments, big old bottle of white vinegar, probably one of my favorite ones. And, and yeah, you can absolutely make something out of nothing. Um, that tastes good and I think nourishes you in more ways than one. Well, I love the cookbook. And one of the things, you know, I think we're in a great time for cookbooks because 
you know, as a chef, I like those chefy kind of restaurant cookbooks, but I don't think I've ever made anything from them. Like, has anyone made anything from like the Noma cookbook? Like not putting anyone blast, but it just, you know, it comes to mind. Like I have all these coffee table books of books that I look through for inspiration and then don't make anything. And then there was always kind of like the cookbooks that I felt were kind of mundane and boring and I wasn't interested. And now I see these chefs making really great cookbooks where all the recipes are approachable, they're affordable, they're fast, but it still feels like a very chef-driven recipe. And I think that's where your book falls in, if if you don't mind that kind of uh, generalization of your book. No, I, I think I it's, you know, it's it's great. It's like the kind of book that I want to cook from these days and the books that I've, I've been using more recently than not. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, this book is a very much a love letter to my career, um, but also to to my family and the ways that my cooking has changed. And, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, I wasn't cooking like this because I wasn't cooking for my kids, you know, and I wasn't, um, I didn't care how much things cost or how long they took. And I cared about, you know, my chef cred or whatever. And I don't really care about my chef cred anymore. <laughs> like, it's fine, you know, but like, I really, um, like I, again, I love kind of like this little food challenge at the end of the day. And I like, I like when my husband turns to me and he says, you know, Oh, I could really go for a Big Mac. And I think, okay, I'm going to make you that, but it's going to be a salad, you know? And so kind of teasing out these flavors that we love, um, using smart techniques from, you know, my whole career. And, and sometimes I don't even realize that those little touches that I do are anything exceptional because as chefs, as cooks, this stuff is just de rigueur. Like it's just normal. Like, you know, you know, to do X, Y, and Z because it's just been beaten into you. Um, not literally, but, um, but you just know all these little things that other people look at and they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, even teaching people to season with acid as opposed to just reaching for salt and pepper, um, or how far like a fistful of herbs can go in making a dish feel, you know, lighter and more compelling or which herbs to use. Like these, it's just these little touches that takes the home cook to the next level. And, um, I love kind of creating that roadmap for them in a way that still feels relatable and, um, and achievable for sure. Yeah, I have a friend who has an oil and vinegar shop in town, and she always has people ask her, like, how do you use vinegar? And to me, that's like mind-blowing. Like, what do you mean, how do you use vinegar? I probably have 15 kinds in my pantry at home. I use it in literally everything from a splash in a soup to on top of a chicken as it comes out of the oven. Like, it, to oh, me, it. it's just surprising that people have questions. Like you said, with the hot honey, like, I thought everyone knew how to use hot honey. You can yeah. find it in every grocery right store. Into your mouth, you know? Yeah. It's honey, which can go on anything, and hot food goes on anything too. Yeah, it um and but I think too, people are so they're disconnected from food in a lot of ways too, or they're nervous about it. You know, I mean, I use the white vinegar, I use just big bottles of it. Um and I also will infuse it, right? Like, you know, in spring I take all the chive blossoms dump my white vinegar over and I just have that all year. People are like, do you keep it in the fridge? Where do you keep it? What do you use it for? Does it go bad? And I'm like, is vinegar like, no, it can't go bad. You know, it's one of the main preservatives. Um, so yeah, I think that's also for me why I really like teaching the classes here at the good earth, because you really, you're, you're face to face with people teaching them how to cook and you really start to learn 
what people don't know. And again, we're in this bubble, right? Like we're cooks. We talk to other cooks or we talk to like our spouses or friends who, um, even then, like there's kind of a level of knowledge, but when you just meet the average person on the street, you can be, you know, tossing salad and they're like, what is that? And then you have to explain that it's arugula, but they've just never seen it before. I did a pop-up dinner this weekend and there was, we had like a chef's counter and one of the guys sitting there had no idea what like anything was. And it was just because I was talking the whole dinner and like everything I took out, he'd be like, what's that? And to me, it was all very basic, straightforward stuff. It's like, you mean you've never, like you've never seen grits before? And then I've got like collard greens. He's like, I've never had those. What kind of greens are them? I'm like, you know, the guy was like in his 30s, like almost 40. I'm like, really? Like you don't know these ingredients? It wasn't like some exotic thing from another country, the other side of the world, but the things we take for granted. Yeah, it's interesting. And and the access that we have, um, and also I think all, all cooks, you know, kind of worth their salt, have a level of curiosity, right? And we're always reading, we're always, you know, we're always going to events, we're always looking what other chefs are doing. And Again, I think we don't even realize how much we know, you know? So why tackle a cookbook? I mean, I know we all have personal things to say about cooking and recipes, but there's thousands of cookbooks out there, you know? Um, It just seems like a daunting task to begin with, so you have to probably really be driven and committed to do this. So what made you want to do that as an undertaking? Well, it's funny, because driven and committed are two words I would use to describe myself. Um... But yeah, I mean, this, this cookbook in particular, I feel like these are recipes that are really tremendously useful. And I don't think that there are too, too many cookbooks which do celebrate humble ingredients like cabbage and like potatoes, um, and which really also highlight vegetables. Um, in a way, though, where it's not, it's not a vegetarian cookbook by any stretch of the imagination. There's a section dedicated to meats, but I think it is a modern way of cooking and a modern way of eating. And it's an interesting thing too, right? Because it was all written and tested during COVID. And I live in a small town. At the time, um, I mean, I had an adult roommate, but I was you know, living on my own with two kids uh, who were at the time were about three. So it wasn't like I was able to like run to the grocery store and we weren't even able to go to the grocery store for a little while. So everything that I was sourcing for this book was, you know, pantry items, really cheap, the way that publishing works in Canada, like you really don't get a big chunk of that advance. So it was kind of all out of pocket for me, but the result is all these recipes are, you know, within reason, I would say like really affordable to make. And I'm not sort of like everything needs bacon or like slather this in some sort of premium ingredient. It's like, you're going to have to maybe put a little bit of work in, but not too much work in. And these are just simple ingredients that you can elevate with vinegar or, you know, herbs or, or whatever. And it's, it's about to like the pleasures of the table, but also the pleasures of cooking. And I mean, I'm babbling now, but I really feel like I have a unique perspective. I mean, I don't think there's many chefs with my kind of background, which You know, someone recently called me like the best kept secret in Canada or whatever. And it's kind of like a backhanded compliment, but I've been in this industry for 20 years. I've cooked at the James Beard house. Um, You know, I've, uh, I've been at a myriad of festivals. I was the culinary director of the Nantucket wine festival when I was like 27, you know, I was executive chef of nine restaurants by the time I was 35. 
Um, and I have this huge long career, but what I'm really focused on now is family cooking. And I think that merging those two things, it's a really special part of the Venn diagram that I'm in. And I think also as like a mother of twins, um, and, a you know, I mean, I'm married now, but a single mom for a long time, like there's just like a level of can do, which I bring to the whole thing, which I think makes it special. Um, and also the aesthetics. I mean, I'm driven by the need to create beauty in my own life, you know, as a little bit of, it's almost like a small act of resistance. <laughs> Sometimes the world feels overwhelming, but I really put a lot into the way that the book looks, um, which again, is just, it's from my background and from the way that, you know, I've lived my life. Um, but just bringing that out and making like, it's a really, I, I think very unique book with a, a lot in there so much that I can't form a coherent sentence around it. <laughs> no, I, I do love, it. I'm drawn for some reason to this creamy radish dip that's in there. Yes. That I feel like that's going to be the first thing I'm going to make. And again, that's something like, I don't know. I, I feel like people don't eat radishes. Like we always have them in our house. And like one of our big things is we always have like crudite on the table. But then mm -hmm. whenever I put them into a dish, people are like, what is this? A radish? I'm like, yep, you've never had them before. But but it, for me, you do make this book that has a lot of really cool recipes that I think everyone's going to enjoy. And I think it's also the kind of book that you could cook with kids. You know, it's not like cooking for kids per se or with, you know, there's a lot of like cooking with kids books. And I hate those books because they're always so like dumbed down and mundane. And I feel like a lot of these recipes, you know, I actually have twins myself. They're 10. I have boy girl twins and they love being with me in the kitchen and finding recipes that I feel like are also accessible that they could help with. I think this is one of those books. So yeah. I'll let you know how that goes as we try and cook our way through this book. Yeah, no, honestly, I mean... My kids started, you know, mixing chia pudding when they were like a year and a half old, you know, and, and even now, like we eat, we eat a lot of carbs, but they help me, they help me roll pizza dough. We make lamachin, which is like a Middle Eastern, um, it's like a, it's a lamb flatbread, you know, spiked with like allspice and cinnamon and peppers and it's delicious and they just think it's pizza, but we make lamachin together and they roll the dough and um, I made pad CU at home the other night um, and they helped me pull the noodles and, you know, it's a real, like, they don't know what they know, um, but cooking with kids doesn't have to be like panda bear cupcakes. It can be. Panda bear cupcakes are great or like happy face pizza, but it can also be, you know, more meaningful because cooking with kids and I could talk about this forever, but like they're learning so much. They're learning fractions. They're learning teamwork. They're learning patience. That's the, that's the way that I taught my kids fractions because that's where my kids are in school right now is they're doing fractions. And when I think about fractions, that's literally what I use it for all the time. And when we're trying to visualize like they're having to add fractions and the easiest thing is for me to take like a half cup measuring cup and a quarter cup measuring cup out and then the third cup and be like, see, that's how the numbers come together. One half plus one quarter equals three quarters. And for me, it just made sense. So I love doing that. It's like, let's just get over here with all the cooking stuff and that'll help put it all together. Right. And I think particularly baking is great for that. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I really love the baking section in this book because again, so many people are daunted by baking and particularly even in professional kitchens, like I just know so many cooks um, who are like, I'm a chef. 
I'm not a baker. And I'm like, I just wing, I just wing it. I don't measure things. Right. Isn't that what no, we've heard for so many years? Just like, come on, man. Like my grandma could bake a cake and she wasn't a chef either, you know? And it's just like, there's a real, you know, Oh, and it's like, yeah, baking's a science, but it's not an exact science. And like, we're not laminating any doughs here. Um, you know, you could knock together a cake in five minutes you know, you just got to chuck a few things in the blender and pour it in a pan. Like you're fine, you know? And, um, I do, I, yeah, I really love like quick kind of thoughtful, but delicious baking recipes because I think it also, it's just like one more kind of thing to have in your back pocket. Um, and one more way to just enjoy being in the kitchen and to enjoy the results. Yeah. I work as a personal chef. That's my full-time job. And, you know, I, I don't really want to buy pre-made products and I had to kind of teach myself more and more desserts. And I'm seeing that with a lot of my peers who are doing the same thing. Cause so many of us were trained professionally in the savory kitchen. You know, you maybe did like expo or something or worked in pantry and had to like garnish desserts, but we weren't making them and to now offer 15 different desserts to my customers. Yeah. I've really had to figure out some things and you play to your strengths. Like decorating is never going to be my thing. Like decorating a beautiful wedding cake. I'm not going to get there, but I can make some delicious desserts that I think still look nice. I have my eyes on the molasses chocolate cookies in your book because molasses cookies are my all time favorite cookie, but chocolate chip are kind of like a close second. So I feel like you've kind of found a way to, to bridge that together. And uh, are they good? Are they, oh, am I going to enjoy them? They're so good. And they don't like, they don't not like in a nice way, tastes like a Chunks Ahoy, which I like. I like when my stuff kind of tastes like something janky and nostalgic, like from childhood. So yeah, I actually made those the other day. And, um, and I mean, my girls love them, but like, I love them. And after my girls went to bed, I definitely also made an ice cream sandwich. <laughs> That's a pro move right there. Yeah, I was like, oh, but it's they, they have such a nice texture too, because I like them a little underbaked, and then they firm up. And then it's yeah, now I want that again. But yeah, they're great for an ice cream sandwich. Where do you find inspiration? And not necessarily just in the culinary world. I think we draw from all over. And maybe if, you know, you're talking about the culinary world, that's fine. But also, like, what just inspires you? I I mean, a lot of, like, a lot of, a lot of what inspires me is just the idea of, again, sort of creating, like, a, a beautiful life. And for me, food is part of that making in general is part of that. Like I really try and create more than I consume. Um, and lately I've been working just a little more than I'd like to be. Um, so I'm not doing as much, um, creating at home. I'm still cooking a lot, but, um, but I sew a lot. I really got into that a few years ago and I started kind of making a lot of my own clothes. Actually I made the shirt and sort of moving a little bit into that world, which Instagram is kind of a weird place. And I've had um, an interesting relationship with it over the years because it's really helped me kind of grow my platform. But I also kind of, I'm really pretty selective in how I use it. Like I don't really go on there and look at what other people are doing <laughs> unless it's women in the sewing community. Cause that's like my favorite thing. It's just a nice group of middle-aged women complimenting each other. And I love that. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm very inspired by like design. Um, I'm very inspired by like a kind of specific sort of uh, like a really cozy aesthetic, if that makes sense. And I think in looking at the book, it does. But I'm also, I don't know. I I'm also inspired by 
yeah, just kind of places I've been and things I've seen and big, beautiful pieces of art and wonderful pieces of music. When I was in university through happenstance, um, I ended up in Czech Republic and I studied the aesthetics of Baroque opera there, which you wouldn't think would be useful. Um, but I just, I learned a lot about like design there, but also about Eastern European culture in general and history and communism. Um, and yeah, there's a real kind of like through line in my work that celebrates, I think, Eastern European culture. And that sort of, I don't know, I love green velvet and brass. No, <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. I One, I, I think everyone should have hobbies outside their profession because, I'm, I, you know, it's fine to go deep, but I think it's also nice to have something. And now we're in this like side hustle economy and like every time you get a hobby everyone's like well you should you know put that on etsy or whatever or create a blog for it. it's like sometimes i just want to do my thing like i love photography and i started my own instagram just for like photography to like just post my stuff and not have to like make it optimized for the likes and the engagement like oh three people like my photo cool i don't really care and then i just follow like artists and interesting people in the you know, musicians I want to listen to because you can't do that from your, you know, business account because then it throws off the algorithm and, you know, all that nonsense, right? Yeah. I mean, Instagram is not the place I go. It's, it's not really the place I go for much inspiration. And it's certainly not the place I go for my news. And I think a lot of people um, are on the other side of that, on the other side of that line. But I, I don't know. I don't want to open something that's supposed to be for fun and feel stressed out. I just, I can't live like that. I can't create from a place of, of anxiety and stress and I can't come up with solutions um, from that place. Some people maybe can, but I think we're, um, we're often surrounded by a lot of negativity. And so I try and keep everything like light and bright. And, um, you know, I just look at a lot of pictures of mouse cartoons on the internet and that makes me happy. Whatever works for you, but you did have an alter ego a couple of years ago, right? Like 2015, 2016 or so, like you were someone else on the internet. Yeah. I had a satirical Instagram. Um, and you know, I mean, there was you know, like anything I've done, there was a lot there to unpack. Um, and I don't, you know, I, it's not something that I really talk about much because it's a little bit like taking the head off Mickey mouse. You know what I mean? And this character kind of, um, he very much stood on his own and I think was emblematic, you know, he's a bit of an everyman as a cook. And, you know, again, high level of detail, very specific backstory, like anyone who followed along kind of got to know him and his way and had, had really met him before in a weird way. But um, that was fun, you know, and it, it definitely, I think it changed the course of my career too, because a lot of, a lot of... I think being a woman in the industry, a lot of people don't really think that you're capable of much. At that time, I was just, and I don't say just, but yeah, you know, I was a, a lady making salads in Toronto and it, nobody ever suspects the lady making salads in Toronto of having this Instagram account with like a huge following, tremendous following at that time. So it was fun, but it was also just kind of for me, I was like, yeah, I can do this. I can do other stuff too, you know? You know, it's fun to poke fun at the industry, though. Like, I think whatever industry you're in, and I think that's probably why there was so much success. You know, I think you're seeing it now if you, you know, the Sussmans on Instagram, kind of same thing, like subversive, like jabs at the restaurant industry in like a tongue in cheek way, but like also kind of serious. 
yeah, I mean, with with Jacques, he was never he was never mean, right? And that was something that was really interesting. Like I created this nice little corner of the internet where like, yeah, he would make fun of himself. And yeah, there was obviously some stuff there about the reliance on an immigrant workforce or workforce. Sorry. Um, There was stuff about sexism, you know, there was all kinds of things down a layer, but it was never mean spirited and it was never targeted at anyone. And it was never sort of, it never went after anyone. And even the people who came with negative comments which was very few. Um, his response was always like super cheerful and super like, thanks brother, you know? And um, it was a really, I mean, it was a really interesting social experiment for me. And it was a way also for me to use these skills, plating and, you know, develop some skills in photography, I guess, you know, that have really, uh, yeah, have really helped. And I think at its core, like it, it was kind of like the food that a lot of us wanted to eat. Like how many times do you talk about like chefs who like really just want to eat a taco or a burger anyway? Like I, I work like Cheez-Its into like my dishes that I sell to my customers, you know, like who doesn't love that stuff? So, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think we see more of that now for sure, but I think that that account really kind of, it changed the shape of food in, in you know, a little bit of a way because it was like. Yeah, who doesn't love a Choco Taco? You know, like, let's be honest. But I think there was also an element of plating kind of got out of control there for a little bit. And, you know, I would see these chefs with these huge followings online and I would eat at their restaurants. I'd be like, this is not very good. You know, they're still out there. Yes, absolutely. Emphatically, yes. And we do eat with our eyes first. But at the end of the day, like the flavor's got to be there. And again, that's where with with my food... You know, insofar as like I can put together a delicate plate, you know, there's also nothing wrong with a big nine by 13 pan of beige. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of good food out there that doesn't look that beautiful. And we really do have to strike a balance in in the way that we are eating and the way that we're presenting. And, you know, I think, yeah, tiny portions, tweezered everything. It doesn't necessarily guarantee like a great eating experience. No, and I love brown food. You know, there's too. nothing... This again at this dinner I did this weekend, it was grits with like a braised short rib and collard greens. So you've got like yellow grits and like brown meat with like drab green, but like there were so many flavors and what I worked and I resisted the urge to just like throw nasturtiums on there just because or whatever. You know, it's like you don't need to always do that. Yeah. And you don't always need to fuss with things so much. I think Julia Child very famously said that she didn't like food that appears to have been fingered. And, you know, Absolutely. Like, I, and I, I do love like every once in a while, like a delicate plate of crudo or something that clearly has had a lot of thought put into the plating, but there's a lot of dishes out there where it's like, you know, just, just give me a piece of meat, you know, and some potatoes and I'll be happy. I actually met you at the Star Chefs Congress. Like, I guess that was probably like 2016, like probably like right after you're coming out there. And oh, I was there with Will Gilson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think like you're serving food for the lunch, one of the lunches those days or something like I have pictures somewhere in my archives of you like making food, I think. Or you were at a twins and didn't realize it at that time. You were pregnant with twins at that time? Yeah. That was before I found out. I found out I was maybe six or seven weeks pregnant when I I was like, why am I getting so chubby? And um, it's because I was carrying two babies at the same time. But yeah, yeah. Star Chefs was one of my last kind of events that I did for a while there because I was just and yeah I wanted to do something different and 
everyone kept trying to shuttle me into being this, you know, come here and play junk food. And I was like, it's really not exciting. Like it was a joke, you know, and, and, and now we're taking it too far. But I do love New York. It was a nice trip to New York. I remember that. It's always a good trip. I've missed it because they haven't had it since the COVID year. So I guess 2019 was the last year. What does sustainability mean to you? I know you talked about like using things, you know, that you had on hand. To me, that's a lot of sustainability is like wasting nothing. You touched on that. And that's, you know, so many of the guests I'm talking to recently, that's one of the big things they've kind of been focusing on, you know, when they started their business or in the past few years. So what are like some of the things you're interested in in the realm of sustainability? Uh, I mean, there's definitely a, a few different things. And, and there's also like my my at home and my at work. Um, but yeah, at home, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, right? Like I really don't waste too much to the point where like it's a well-known fact amongst my group of friends that like my deep freezer just has like so much random stuff in it. But I'm like, I'm not throwing out those bones. Like I'm going to make a stew. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much, I use almost everything, even if it's just, you know, the herbs are going a bit, meh, you know, I put them in a zip top bag in the freezer. They go into my next pot of broth. My next book, which I'm working on now, like I have a whole section on all those stuff I don't throw out and how to use it. Like whether it's, you know, cheese rinds, bread butts, dill pickle juice is a big one that like, I feel like people just toss and it's like, I can give you 10 different things you can do with that. I have a jar in my fridge that's a combo. It's like half and half dill pickle juice and like pickled jalapeno juice. And it's just like this master mother jar of like when something ends, I add some more. And yeah, it's great. like make a salad dressing, like poach a piece of fish, steam your smash burgers, like at the end, not to start. Um, yeah, so many different things. Uh, put it on oysters. Um, but yeah, like I think I have a long list of things that normally people throw out and I don't really throw out. Um, I make a lot of broths. I love soup. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, just everything goes into into something else, I feel like, which is very funny and ironic because when I was a kid, we'd always be like, Mom, corn in the lasagna again. Like, she, And she always did that. So for me, like sustainability at home is really trying to use everything. and But in a way where you're not eating the same thing over and over again. And I think I'm really good at that. I'm really good at taking you know, one night's roast chicken and turning it into like six different meals that all taste very different. Cause I think like leftover fatigue is a real thing. Um, and I think that in showing people how I do that pretty regularly, like that is my little sustainability gift to the world. I try and feel like, and, and again, the next book that I'm working on, I, you know, I actually have like master recipes and then how to use them, um, as well as sort of formula recipes where it's the same sort of base of, X amount of vinegar, X amount of broth, X amount of, you know, da, 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 da. And here's how you would do that with tofu. Here's how you would do it with chicken. Here's how you do it with fish kind of thing. Um, so I really try to create recipes that teach people that, again, in a way that feels fun, right? Because some people want you to get on board with sustainability, again, from a place of fear, from a place of anxiety, from a place of finger wagging. And for me, I'm like, yo, I'm having the best party. We've got the best snacks. Would you like to come bring your puffy sleeves, you know? And so I think that is really important for me. And on the puffy sleeves note, I think, again, something for me that's important in terms of sustainability is, and this is a little detail in the book that not everyone will notice, but pretty much every single item of clothing in that book, I either made myself or is thrifted. 
And we can all be here for the idea of farm to table, which because it's not actually verified by anyone, what does that even mean? Uh, but we can all be here for like local sourcing and really trying to do our best with food waste. And I think that that is super important. But the number two worst environmental offender behind big oil is not big ag. It's fast fashion. And so that is another part of like my party where like I'm usually wearing goofy clothing. Um, and again, but I've almost like I haven't bought new clothes in maybe like five years other than underpants. Which we don't really have to talk about, but you know what I mean? And so I've stepped out of this cycle, which I think most of us are in and we don't even realize it. But yeah, I don't support brands anymore, which are part of the fast fashion cycle. And that's a real key piece of sustainability that for me is just like the soft sell where it's like, yeah, like wear the shoulder pads, like buy the eighties clothes and just come to my party, like come to this place of joy and not sort of not the finger wag. There's a party going on downstairs. Yeah. I mean, in general, restaurants are hard to make them sustainable. I, there's very few. And when you're a small business, it's really hard. But one of the things that we've really tried to do at my restaurants in Toronto is we've really tried to support and, and amplify regenerative agriculture. So that's another big one just with climate change is letting people know again, more about the solutions and less about the problems. So regenerative agriculture, farmers use low or no-till farming methods, agricultural methods, and they're able to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground where it belongs. And if we converted like, I think it's like a thousandth or something um, of like just regular old agriculture to regenerative agriculture, we would not just stop climate change, we would actually be able to reverse it, which would be wonderful because sometimes, especially the summer when it's like real hot and I'm like, I don't remember being this hot. Like you just want a turtle. Right. And as a parent, it's something that I really kind of struggled with when I had, you know, my girls and you're full of hormones and you're kind of crazy anyway. And I was like, what have I done? You know, what are we doing? Um, but you can't turtle, but you can get on board with people who are doing the right thing and even just letting people know that regenerative agriculture exists. I don't care if they come to my restaurant. Um, I care that they know that regenerative agriculture is a solution and that they can go and buy St. Bridget's butter. They can go and buy greens from the new farm. Like there's all these little, you know, kind of farms and producers who are popping up and by driving the message home that this is a solution. I think that that's, you know, one of my things that I really try and do to help. And I'm just one person for sure. But I think, you know, I think that those kind of small solutions are helpful to people. And so that's what I try to do. And it's not all or nothing. You know, I think sometimes it's really easy to get overwhelmed, like that you have to be composting and saving all your scraps and recycling everything. And it's easy to just be like, I can't do any of this, but like, start slow. It's yeah. it's like changing your diet and lifestyle. Like you don't have to start running marathons. Just like maybe get up and walk a little bit, the same thing and, and trying to get people to just find one or two things that really works for them. And, you know, then maybe it snowballs a little bit. Right. And I think it drives creativity for someone who's a chef or a cook or culinarily inspired, like the idea of vinegar, right? Like I'm going on vacation. I got nasturtiums in my backyard. I just go and grab them and throw them in a jar with vinegar. And I come back from vacation. I have this like really cool, bright red nasturtium vinegar. You know, it's like because I don't want to waste something that I put the energy into growing. 
So for me, it like kind of drives creativity. What do I have that's getting ready to go? How do I use it and make some new condiments or something? Yeah, I, I find so much creativity in my kitchen comes from, yeah, trying not to waste things, you know, going to like no frills and seeing what's on sale. Um, you know, I never really have a plan for what I'm going to cook each day. Um, it's just kind of five o'clock and I look around and I think like, this is what I have. And, um, yeah, being creative with what you've got or what you can get, that's a, that's a huge kind of step towards sustainability. And people might not even realize that, but it is. Most definitely. Well, is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we get out of here today? Yeah. I mean, check out the book. It's called A Generous Meal, Modern Recipes for Dinner. It's full of wonderful and sometimes weird recipes and a lot of personal kind of touches and essays and little Easter eggs that I think people will enjoy. But it's, you know, it's meant to improve people's lives in a way that feels both aspirational and achievable, you know, and that's, I think the book for right now, when we're all looking for more recipes with cabbage and cans of beans, um, they're all in there, but they taste delicious and they're easy to make. I love the book. I'm going to keep working my way through it. I'll keep you posted on how that's going. And uh, as always, I share photos of my experiments on the internet. So for all the listeners, if you're following me, you might see some of these recipes pop up in your feed. Uh, And I link everything in the show notes so people will be able to pick up that book. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed having you today. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And to all of our listeners, as always, this is Chris, and this was the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.